Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Hello and welcome to uh, another Friday lunchtime lecture uh, at the Open Data Institute. My name is Jamie Fawcett. Um, I'm going to be introducing our speaker. It's a very special uh, uh, talk this week. Um, so uh, just a few uh, reminders. Uh, if you are using the uh, hashtag on Twitter is hashtag ODI Fridays. Um, and we have uh, guests uh, streaming online from ODI leads and other uh, nodes as well. So if we can save questions in the room until the end, and we'll pass you the microphone and uh, speak into it. And um, on Twitter, if you have a question, use the hashtag ODI Fridays, and we'll be able to ask it directly. So, uh, our speaker today uh, really doesn't need any introduction in these four walls or in open data in general, but I will do it anyway. Um, Professor Nigel Shadbolt, co-founder of the Open Data Institute and principal and professorial research fellow, is that correct? <laughs> At Jesus College, Oxford. Um, and yeah, Nigel, would you speak on? Thanks, Jamie. Thank you. Well, great place to be. I was thinking how long it was since I'd actually given a formal talk. Uh, I don't think I ever have, actually, so uh, it, just in five years uh, within ODI. So this is a great uh, pleasure and uh, uh, has given me to think a little bit about where we've come from, um, where we're heading in the open ju uh, data journey. So I'll talk about about 35 minutes or so, and then we'll take questions, I guess, is the format. So, um, yeah, I have both an academic set of credentials and, and affiliations in computer science at Oxford, but also, of course, my, my passion, along with Tim Berners-Lee, is for trying to unleash the power of open data. So there's some, some truisms, first of all, and I, I don't mean to, to bore you with this. It would be pretty fast to canter through some of these slides. Um, disruptions happen when what was formerly uh, scarce becomes abundant, whether it's agriculture or the written word, uh, whether it's industrial processes or the modern internet, the disruption happens when what costs a lot of money to produce becomes very much more widely available. And those inflection points have been really important in human history. We are kind of obviously in one now. And partly that's driven, and again, uh, people see these. I, I like to put it up to remind myself of just how far things have changed in my time. When I went up to Edinburgh to study my PhD in artificial intelligence, oh, that's long ago, it's a long time ago, <laughs> um, you can see where we were in terms of, uh, uh, well, we just had the Motorola 6800, which had 4,100 transistors. We thought that was pretty cool. Um, and we ran our processors on DEC um, 8 and 11 machines, uh, DEC, DEC, DEC 20 machines and PDP 11s and 8s. It was all very, very uh, pedestrian computing, so much so that in the in the 20, 30, 40 years now of my engagement with this field, we have seen increases of six orders of magnitude, a million times more powerful our computers. Uh, and that has changed the landscape entirely in terms of what's available and what's possible. And of course, we also realize that this power is, is actually being encapsulated increasingly within devices that we carry around us. I mean, that's just really important to remember because even those of us who profess and research the area are caught out by the disruptive effects of those orders of magnitude change. And we can kind of discuss them in detail. There's lots of um, 
log-log plots or power law, uh, exponential laws in computing electronics. That's one of them, the process of power itself, but memory has gone through the same uh, memory density and storage has gone through the most remarkable um, increases over the last few decades. So has the speed of our communications, um, uh, Crider's law, Cooper's law, whichever one you look at, there are these extraordinary exponentials. Well, we understand that. The other thing I like to do at the outset is just try and <coughs> re-establish some sense. We live in, we talk about open data, we are the Open Data Institute, but actually it's a complete philosophical and epistemological kind of travesty. Um, that's data. You've no idea what it means or denotes or connotes. And the kind of real challenge for us in a lot of data science is, what does the data actually mean? Well, as soon as we put any semantics around it whatsoever, that first number could become a temperature, could become a temperature in centigrade of an individual. That one could be the number of white blood cells in a specific unit of blood, okay? which would be a very good measure of your, of your health, of your immune system. That's information. Okay? So providing semantics. And most of the time when we talk about open data, we're actually talking about open information because we have a good some sense, not a complete sense, of what the semantics, what the meaning of the data is. And to use only a very particular notion of how information becomes uh, knowledge, we can turn to the standard one, which is the idea of actionable information. If I know, for example, uh, something about these two pieces of knowledge now, these pieces of information, a temperature and a white blood cell count, I can start to make inferences about whether or not this person is immune suppressed whether or not they might actually have an infection, whether we should be thinking of prescribing them antibiotics and this kind of thing. Okay, so that, that, that move from data to information to knowledge is a really th important thing to bear in mind. And of course, we live and breathe it, but often when the terms are used, um, people appeal to data not being fit for purpose. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's the underlying information and how it's collected. The other very useful thing is, again, work that the ODI has done, is to recognize and remind ourselves that this data and information sits on a spectrum from closed to open, from big to medium to small, from personal to commercial to government. These various dimensions fix in a multidimensional space the nature of any information we're looking at. This is relatively uh, large data that relates to health about individual patients and we will decide that we wish to share this on a patient consent basis. That would fix your data in a part of this information space. And the reason that's important, I think, is that as we have gone through our journey here at the ODI, as I'll try and point out toward the end of the talk, um, these two ends of the spe these, this spectrum and these two ends of the spectrum become really quite important for one another. Um, and the other thing I like to point out is people say, well, open data, what's it worth? Uh, give us examples. And it didn't start in 2009 or 2008. It didn't start with the power of information review. It's always been around. I mean, some of the best examples you'll find of open data were the bills of mortality that were published during the Great Plague um, in, in London causes of death, they founded the insurance company, the actuarial tables of how long you're likely to live. Um, these things were available, as was in the uh, 
2000s, the, the, the human genome. Now, the interesting thing about the human genome, which is now widely understood to be information about an object of such importance, that why would you want to keep it closed? Why would you want to patent it? All these arguments were won after having been taken to court. There was a moment when companies were setting out to monetize and commercialize the protection of certain information relating to this structure. And uh, famously in a court judgment, that when that was struck down, people actually lost money. There, there, there were companies that had a view that they were going to patent particular particular drugs to tackle particular parts of the genome, for example, those associated with female breast cancer. That was struck down. Um, the result of that was to liberate huge amounts of economic innovation around the common use of this information. Now, of course, pharmaceutical companies are still busy developing drugs and delivery mechanisms that have IP protection around them, but there's a sense in which the foundation the common information underlying much of that endeavor now is, 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 is humanity's information. Okay. We feel quite strongly here, I think, at the ODI that that value of trying to find the biggest chunk of the information assets we have as open data promotes innovation. So, again, and let's just remind ourselves, and this is a blast from the past, this is, uh, this is back in 2009-10, we were busy, we'd been asked by uh, Gordon Brown's government to, to try and make more public data public. Uh, we got together with a group at the Guardian publishing headquarters um, and we, we did a thought experiment. Uh, we wondered what it would be like if you could publish this uh, information about your local postcode, all the data that government, local and national collected about you as a kind of an insert for your local paper, you know, the postcode paper. That'd be great. Everything from where your allotments were to what the crime weights were locally to where your green space was, what was your recycling history, so on. Um, we, the great thing was when we started, most of the stuff we produced in this paper was illegally reproduced. And for those of you who don't remember, let me, let me point out, including the postcode itself. That was actually that, that that actual piece of data had to be liberated in a sense, had to be made openly available for anyone to use. So where are we now? Well, I mean, variously, depending on when you take the screenshot and uh, what's up, you know, the data.gov.uk will be sporting tens of thousands of data sets. So that looks like big progress and we can feel uh, pleased with that. And we will point to Examples like police.uk, reported crime. We can point to our, some of our health data, whether it's mortality in hospitals or, or obesity rates. We can look at prescription data. So again, people who have taken this data, people like Ben Goldacre's group, uh, look at the prescribing habits of, of GPs and practices across the country. Been really useful insights there about um, whether or not we can improve prescribing, whether we're prescribing most efficiently, what the differences are uh, in postcode prescriptions, if you like. We've had, again, the ODI heavily involved in this work. Entire departments come on board uh, with the open data agenda and begin to publish more and more. DEFRA um, publishing thousands of data sets that relate to agricultural and rural data. Um, the release of data that relates to everything from river level heights to... Uh, to groundwater sites. 
and this place, of course, you know, which we're very proud of. And, and, and we're proud of it because it's there not just to stimulate the generation of open data, but to help train, to help incubate startups, to uh, help develop and advise on policy. All these things are good. See, I get through slides quickly, don't worry. I mean, there are a lot of slides, but we'll get through them quickly. Right, but that's the, we can say, good, good job. Uh, isn't that encouraging? But what of the future? What's the future going to look like? And I think a number of us feel that whilst there was considerable enthusiasm for the Open Data Project, um, political attention spans, you know, they're not fixed. They moved on to other issues of the moment. And it's really important that we keep restating why open data is so important. And in some areas, you just see the tide rolling back. I mean, a very... I think, unfortunate announcement from the U.S. administration just yesterday that they're withdrawing from the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, which is a, a really important commitment that's been made by a number of countries in the Open Data Charter, uh, the Open Data um, uh, Open Government Partnership. So, the current achievements aren't just where we necessarily want to be to sit on our laurels, but neither are they entirely always secure. I think, you know, eternal vigilance and, and, and more to do. So what of the future? So what I observe is, and I'll use one, one particular reference example, it's quite well known, but I think it bears examination. And this is what happened with the transport data that we now have available in real time from Transport for London. And we go to their site, and not only do we see that there is a dedicated team uh, supporting uh, data publishing but there's a API there's an application programming interface that allows you to get in real time large amounts of information about the state of transport in the capital um, and this is generated to a high quality it's deeply tedious in terms of kind of lots of bracketed content but it means that all sorts of things can happen, as we'll see. But we should not forget that back in 2010, transport bodies were still convinced that this data shouldn't be released, or if it was released, it might be misused or abused, or might put their own application developers out of a job. I mean, lots and lots of reasons were advanced it took political will. And interestingly, one of the uh, key decisions this time was made by the then Minister of Transport, Philip Hammond. Interesting um, to also understand the, uh, the position Philip Hammond now plays, of course. Um, these things didn't happen automatically. We were given lots of reasons why opening up data could be dangerous, regressive, lose money. But of course, the truth is, and this is just one application, this is a city mapper application, these have been hugely important assets to develop the ecosystem. We variously use the results and outputs of uh, the API, uh, the, the data that, uh, that, that TFL is providing. And actually, just recently, TFL's own analysis identifies a, a multiplier of, of over 100 times in terms of the value they believe is created as against the cost of supplying this data to a high standard. Now, 
What's this illustrate? I think it illustrates something really important that we have to think about trying to move the open data community to. Portals are fine, but actually what, 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 what is really most useful very often is high quality, real-time access to evidenced and provenance and authoritative data. APIs are a good way to do that. You might want to download the most recent best version of a bulk data set behind some of this. When we begin to think of our data like that, we start to think of it in terms of infrastructure. Now, not all of our infrastructure is quite as we would like it, but if you think of infrastructure in terms of rail or distribution, uh, uh, energy distribution networks like the power grid, or indeed the underlying uh, physical connectivity of the, of the internet, you begin to understand that there are qualities that we require of that infrastructure. So if we think of data as infrastructure and not have people get confused that, oh, the infrastructure must be the pipes and wires over which that stuff runs. No, this stuff itself is the infrastructure. The list of legally incorporated companies in England, the list of the bus routes that run in London, the times, the actual current location. If we think of that as infrastructure, then these sorts of attributes, reliable, safe, high quality, reproducible, there's governance behind it. It's not willfully uh, available to be removed or taken down. That, um, that there's a degree of interoperability that somebody has thought about how some aspects of the data publication could actually help in another sector if you just use the same identifiers or some of the same terminology or vocabulary. Um, and as an infrastructure, you think about market access, the economies of scale, the innovation you drive. And I think we haven't yet begun to make enough of that argument. As, um, uh, as, uh, uh, as we all need to going forward. And there's some really bizarre aspects when you start to think about infrastructure. Let's go back to transport, which I gave you quite a good rosy estimation of, well, within London, but there are lots of regions where the issue is fragmented, where the content is held in um, different silos, where Rents are being charged for some of it and not in other cases. It's very fragmented. Infrastructure hates frictional impediments, discontinuities. Um, here's an interesting example. This is a, this is a bunch of, of information about our, our railway tracks. Now, this entire website is volunteer maintained. These are people who go around and they are wonderful people who will go around and there are metal plates you may have noticed them on bridges and fittings and crossings uh, and the and the and the level crossings and the signaling in our rail inf uh, infrastructure there aren't lists of those things not definitive lists in any one place this is a place that keeps them it's also a place that keeps historical records of how they've changed Wonderful though this is, the fact that your infrastructure relies on voluntary community efforts. Does that, does that make us feel comfortable? Uh, it is how many data assets have been put together in the past, but how do we bring that kind of feature into our infrastructure? Now, if we look across UK open data, 
I'd submit that some of our best examples are where we have um, persuaded departments and agencies to not only publish, but publish using um, effective uh, application programming interfaces. The company's house data, which is made available, arguments about how it's licensed, because it's interesting that um, not everything that proclaims to be open data is running on what you might think of to be a standard license. And so, again, even where claims are made, you'd want to look at them and understand exactly how the licensing works, just as important as the standards. But here is the API to Companies House. It turns out to be ever so useful. It's being used very widely from everything from county court judgments to people uh, worrying about whether they can um, trust uh, a particular company to, to deliver services and products, uh, whether there are sets of issues to do with potential fraud, um, and also just to get a great uh, understanding of everything from the types of sectors our companies are in to which companies own which other companies, the beneficial ownership. Um, so what I am absolutely convinced we need to be moving towards is a world in which our data is thought to be a national infrastructure and that significant public effort is put into maintaining both a private and a public good. Okay? That it's not enough just to say, let's throw it into data.gov.uk and, and imagine it'll take care of itself. Uh, data to be the really important data very often uh, requires investment. Our infrastructures require investments, whether it's transport or energy, um, our spending or our geography. Now, geography, so geospatial data. Um, again, we made real progress, I think, in working with Ordnance Survey and others to, to open up key parts of the of the land data of the UK. Um, there's more to do. I mean, there's, we, if you were to just look at two obvious areas where we are lacking a key part of what any national data infrastructure might want, one would be the list of legal addresses or delivery addresses, you know. We fought that one, it got, uh, it got sold off to Royal Mail. The other one would be high resolution mapping data that is actually captured and curated by Ordnance Survey. There are products, I think, that still could be improved and innovated if we had a more comprehensive geospatial land uh, data set. And as you begin to integrate that with information from the Land Registry or the Valuation Office, you begin to get a really interesting opportunity from everything from planning to development, from um, census work through to uh, demographic research. So more to do in the area of geospatial data. So I'll come back to this issue. We have got to think as we design, as we advocate, as we use and consume, as we develop policy, that these features which are good features of engineering, apply to the data we're trying to get to produce. So let me just spend a little time then thinking about where else, as people who care about data, 
our interests should reside. I would just say, by the way, that if we're going to make our data available, you don't. So this is just a very fascinating capture. This is a Christmas Day, famous Christmas Day denial uh, of service attacks on the US um, from somewhere in the world. Um, and uh, um, what you do need to understand as you make your data an important part of your infrastructure is that the security aspects become important. That you do, it becomes part of your, your critical national infrastructure uh, with this view. So again, throwing it out there and hoping all will be well, um, there will be considerable disruption to many services if the real-time flow uh, from our transport agencies or the company's house data was somehow uh, uh, spoofed. And this is well understood by government, but I think it's something as we design moving ahead, we've got to, we've got to be constantly aware of. Now, I'm going to talk now about the, the other aspect of policy uh, that well, I and others have been involved with. In 2011, this program, the My Data program, was launched by the coalition government, and this was all about trying to give consumers access to their data. So we're moving from open, non-personal data now to the data that's about all of us. Why does this matter? It's the other end of the spectrum, if you will. Okay. Um, and the, the simple observation was that we often don't feel particularly empowered we, our data is collected, it's variously analysed, and we have, what control do we have over that whole process? And if we did have control, what would that world look like? So the My Data project was about, in fact, we were given the mandate to look at the consumer side working with commercial organisations to see whether there could be a better dual conversation. So the providers of technical products or supply chains or services, um, the data that um, people collect when they're trying to do uh, social analytics, uh, your contact data that goes in when you kind of buy something from a particular provider, just your, all of the online behavioral data that you reveal as, you, as you're kind of browsing websites and so on. This is all you. This is all the other side. The moment the traffic is mainly that way, okay. what, what if there was much more entitlement to you over your data? What does that world look like? So the my data principles that were evolved were all these good ideas, everything from you should be able to ask for your data and you should be able to get it back in a machine-readable way, should be securely available to you, that you as the generator would have some rights to be able to analyse it and integrate it in ways that you decided. So information self-determination, um, that if you actually request something from a company about the data they hold about you, they provide it. They provide it in a way that might be helpful rather than 800 pages from a Tinder app, which is the kind of recent thing I heard about. Um, Organisations shouldn't be precluding you from doing other innovative things with your data. That organisations should be making you more aware of your the opportunities in your data, that we should also understand how the data is collected and how it's reused. Now, of course, 2011, in the meantime, we have the GDPR. It's going to be an official regulation in uh, May 25th or so that provide substantial subject data rights. 
And people have often thrown this up as kind of a, a chilling effect on innovation. Actually, these are really important um, characteristics. And I would say that companies at the moment are staring into the lights of this oncoming regulation and are they really geared up to fulfill those rights, to actually rectify or erase or support portability or indeed give you insight into automated decision making or indeed object to processing it at all. I mean, everybody's massive scaled analytics capable of saying, no, won't, take, won't you take me out? Okay, just me and all the data you have about me. And um, this is certainly going to be creating and is creating a huge amount of, I think, con concern, but also opportunity, I would suggest. Opportunity for us to think about, well, how do these two worlds of open on personal data and data that is about me that I want to have more control around, how do those square away? Um, this is some work we've been doing at Oxford and I'll just give you an, uh, one, one side of it. Um, we have been analysing mobile phone apps and in fact we have a spectacularly large number of them harvested um, from um, the Android um, Play Store. And we've analyzed the characteristics. We've done static analysis, looking inside the code automatically to try and find what information is going where for any particular app. So here's a suite, just a, a small set of apps. I took them off one page of my phone. Um, and uh, it's showing us this is all of the different places that my information is going from those apps. I can look at that by individual app. These are the jurisdictions it's going to. These are the sort of vague reasons, you know, some are for other apps, some are for advertising, some are for the analytics, some are for payments. You can begin to get a very exquisite picture of what data is going where, for what reasons, from the apps on your supercomputer in your pocket. We don't have very, we have very little like that. In fact, we don't understand at scale what your personal exposure to you. We have a sense that the terms and conditions let them do most anything, but do we, are we in a position to make rational choices about we'd rather it didn't go there, okay, or rather it didn't go there, or shouldn't be used for this? All those things that the GDPR is suggesting we have rights to, how's that going to be enacted? So we think that absolutely first requirement is to get powerful instrumentation of what is happening in that world. A bit of an arms race, I should say at the moment, because a lot of these apps on here are designed to obfuscate or encrypt destinations uh, such like. So, uh, but again, this balance between my rights as a consumer or a citizen and an organization's interests, legitimate interests, business interests, but what that balance is. The reason this matters is because we're increasingly aware that we're living in a world of algorithmic decision-making, not just where my information's going, but what's being done with it. And we would like to know. And here's the interesting dual face of non-personal open data and actually aspects of open data that relate to my 
personal information, how am I to know whether I'm being treated with equitably if I don't have access or some understanding of the algorithms, the nature of the data sets being used in the training of decision algorithms, etc. And there are a number of efforts on the way to understand this better, everything from, from Open the Code, where literally people are talking about a need for a degree of algorithmic transparency. So on that, I'd really like to just kind of invite us all to understand that it isn't just about extending our interests from this kind of data here to that kind of data over here. They're fundamentally uh, mutually interdependent. So for me, the future of open data is innovation is promoted by more of it to a high quality, to a level that we think of as infrastructure. Absolutely. And also, all of the other reasons we do open data, transparency, accountability, suggests that in a world where I believe we have every right to be empowered around our own data, open data will matter just as much. It won't be about your data, it'll be about the things that are processing, the types of process, the types of data decisions that are made there. And I think this will become a very contested area, actually. Um, and not least because there will be regulation uh, that will be looking to reset these assumptions. And uh, we're going to see some, I think, very interesting uh, developments in that space. And a final thought. The open publication of non-personal open data is unfinished business. There are... If you could imagine every Department of State in the UK and say, well, what's their API provision of some of their key data sets look like? It's very spotty. Okay. If you were to ask yourself, and how many um, uh, commercial organizations are thinking about the opportunities that open data would offer, it's quite variable. We have some, but there's a lot more to do in that space too. So I think I'll stop there and, and take questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nigel. That was really good. Um, uh, does anyone have any questions? Or I can always start us off because I think I got to about eight. Um, <laughs> there are some questions I know. Though, yeah. Um, well, I'll just start with a question and be greedy about it and then we'll see if mm. anyone else uh, in the room has one. So uh, you touched on it briefly at the end there. But um, when we're talking about sort of open data as a, as a public good and getting everyone to uh, contribute. I'm wondering what the sort of arguments that you see for uh, the private sector, especially, for opening up more data and what or what we need to do to make those arguments clearer and better. Well, um, so we, we've done some of this work for ourselves, as you, of course, at the Open Data Institute and the um, examples like products lists and service lists or indexes that in the past have been catalogues that have been sold uh, opened up as general catalogues that enumerate or registers effectively can be very powerful. A Thomson Reuters uh, uh, catalogue of, of, of financial identifiers, for example. Um, the, um, the ability to share uh, some data in development context is hugely important. So the stuff that's being done on antimicrobial resistance, where there is both 
public and private data in this space, and there's a wider good that clearly everybody benefits from developments in areas where the threat is potentially catastrophic, not just to human health, but also to the kind of uh, range of, 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 of drugs that are available. So I think we've got clear examples. I think it's always about engaging with individual uh, organizations and looking at where this might be. Uh, the best for them. I think, as I say, the GDPR itself, which is a regulation, this isn't a take it or leave it opportunity. What are the classes of information that don't reveal information about their individual consumers, but they do reveal the asset classes of such information they hold about those? Now, that's, that, that being systematic about that would be very help, helpful. Being being, having agreements about the way that that will be referred to would be very helpful. And there's the Open Banking Initiative, for example, which again has been partly pushed by regulation, which is looking at the whole notion of how we can compare and, uh, and list and understand a whole range of pro financial services and banking products that are available. Yeah. Cool, thank you. Do we have uh, other questions from the room? Yeah, let me just grab this microphone, which I've left over here. Um, if, if we go to you first. Now. Uh, Great, so I'll speak up. Uh, hi, I'm Rupert Simons from um, Publish What You Fund. Uh, we campaign for um, open data on development. Yep. And naturally, we spend a lot of time trying to explain digital open data sets to analog users, um, people who may well be um, illiterate or not familiar with, um, with how to use or manipulate data. And I like a lot of what you say about um, how to maintain data as infrastructure. I wonder if you have any examples of um, how the benefits of that data and how the infrastructure that governments build around it has been shaped to meet the needs of the analog users, people who are left behind, people who don't have um, uh, great tech skills to, uh, to hack, uh, use the API and, uh, and build apps on top of it. Well, I think that's a very good point. I think it, it, is, it is, in a sense, um, uh, really incumbent on us to ask that question as we kind of uh, uh, imagine it's, it's, it's quite a big task to take right, rather mature public services on that journey. There is an argument that says uh, if you go into environments where there is relatively little civic technical infrastructure, it can sometimes, it's more of a, <laughs> uh, um, a, a, a level playing field that there aren't always so it's a bit like the argument that says in Estonia you can do things in government services because they've agreed that uh, they'll they'll simply mandate certain aspects of the way information is represented and integrated or you go into another environment and find that there is no uh, existing uh, company's house data set so nobody's been sweating a rent from it in the past um, but I think your point's a good one that that surely there ought to be good practice which says if you're going to set up something like a um, a corporate register uh, how what kinds of things would it contain and what is the simplest uh, way of collecting and republishing that data so I think that's that's really good uh, case in point and again um, in areas like charitable giving itself in the domain that some people work in that area even getting to the point at which basic machine readable data is available is is an achievement um, Every government jurisdiction will tend to say there's, a, there's something different about what they do. Um, and I'd like to, it would probably be very worthwhile to begin to compare and contrast 
where that's true. Areas where you'd think there'd be common consensus, but uh, people can struggle to do this, are things like geospatial data. So the, the various uh, standards that exist, when you get into the minutiae of how a particular country decides it wants to reference and construct an address, and the devil is always in the detail. So then the question is, what is the minimal uh, viable product that you'd like out of that? And I don't think it's probably a very good project in there. <laughs> I mean, do you think there's, a, th there's good, good practice out there? Uh, there's not a lot. I think there's good practice emerging in static situations. So agriculture yeah. is a good one yeah. because yeah. it's inherently geospatial. Yeah. We've yeah. had a project the last two years trying yeah. to categorize um, that data better. Mm. I think where it's very difficult is in fast-moving environments. So tracking where humanitarian aid goes in an emergency is very hard, for yeah. instance. Yeah. Um, finding corruption is very hard because people, very well-paid lawyers, work very hard mm. to, to hide it. Um, I think if we can get um, beneficial ownership registries mm. and corporate registries, particularly in countries where they're currently entirely analog, if we can go past the mm. company's house stage and the Dun & Bradstreet stage straight to an open searchable corporate registry, as I, as I think Ukraine is trying to do with public contracts, and then I think that could, that could work very well. As you say, the technical pace of change can, can be the challenge in that, the high-frequency trading, high-frequency corporate creation is, is such an example, yeah. Um, no, the point about static data, again, I think you, you know, my, the best cases are often, again, um, if you look at some of the scientific data standards that have been evolved for kind of uh, expressing yeah, um, rainfall, various forms of weather data and agricultural data. Good, good example, yeah. The financial benefits of open data often or typically do not accrue to the organizations that are responsible or could be responsible for publishing open data. So if you think specifically about local authorities mm. under austerity, they really struggle and often fail to find the resources and the expertise to turn their existing data assets into open data. And even if you could demonstrate that there was, say, a hundredfold um, value mm. added by that publication, that doesn't actually help them find mm. resources to do it. Mm. And then wonder if you see a way of squaring that circle. No, it's, t it's, it's tricky. And also, um, when you go to locality, you also realize that um, there are endless ways of chopping geographies that mean there's another f problem for interoperability because of the of the regionalization uh, of some of this stuff. So what is local in this area is not coextensive with, uh, with another area of interest. The issue of um, incentivization, um, the issue of where the, where the cost will fall. Again, um, local LGA, there have been attempts, I think, to, to talk about technical standards but sharing the burden, and I would have to say there is an awful lot of incumbent interest in not disrupting the existing because the services are sold time and time again to very, very to a whole range of uh, of, of local authorities, um, and there's quite good uh, profit to be had in that for certain suppliers. So um, I think I think it's a it's it's a challenge, and and it's one of those areas where. The relationship between our central and local government in terms of the way in which resources are understood and, and, and allocated is not perfect. And until people realize this is very similar to the way in which central funds are distributed 
for, for local use and that data ought to be such a category, we're not going to really square that circle ever so well. Some comments on that. I work at the Food Standards Agency. Um, one of our APIs, um, the Food Hygiene Rating Scheme, is one that we've recently learned mm. about a case study in a local authority that actually provides some evidence about what you're talking about. The thing that we really struggle with is those authoritative lists, and in our case, mm. it's food businesses we want. Um, as the Food Standards Agency, food businesses. Food businesses. So it should be a subset of biz mm. businesses yeah, yeah, in yeah. my head, mm. and. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't be responsible for no, that because no. it's much too big for a really tiny government mm. department. But then where should the ownership lie? Yeah. How do we divvy all of that up? And the politics is the really, really hard wow. bit. Again, we're, we're living in an environment where the need to build this sort of infrastructure ought to be, in some sense, understood. And it's difficult because it's ephemeral, it's, it's intangible, you know. So uh, their lists, how interesting are they? But this is actually, of course, where much of civic organisation arose from and recognising that you want to harmonise. Now, and recognising that one way of, of so SIP codes, you know, one way of categorising activity that was developed decades ago simply doesn't reflect modern interests. Or that you don't want one canonical register. One of the things that we've, we've worked on quite a lot in in, 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 um, in information science has been to say, look, you can maintain multiple vocabularies, but you know, you, you, there is a cost to maintaining a vocabulary. So you do want to take a view which is exactly in terms of the type of output product that these services are producing. Or you want to take a view that recategorizes a whole bunch of activity in the face of new types of industrial process that didn't exist uh, a decade ago. I absolutely understand the challenge, and I don't think we've just gotten our head into what the cost of doing business to maintain these things is. We're always, by the way, in need of great use cases like that. So, if I tell you a little bit more, it's not my use case, it just uses some of my data. But um, it takes the FHRS data for Belfast, it also takes the open data about companies from Companies House API. It combines that with some local data around Wi Fi use, water mm. rates, electricity bills. And um, it, it predicted that it would increase the revenues recovered by the local authority from people paying the wrong tax on yeah. their businesses, yeah. their business rates. In the two weeks that they trialled the project, they recovered £350,000. Mm. Mm. It's an amazing mm. case study of some really quite small data sets, but yeah. the impact yeah. that is possible in those local Get authorities. That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds very interesting. I'll share a but it's really good. picture I mean, of yeah. it. On and we're aware that, that a whole issue about um, um, combining geospatial with economic activity, the right categorization with, 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 with frankly, HMRC-style data, that they all make a difference. On to the issue, which, which is the public health interest, is that do we even, are these places which are clearly food outlets being inspected, for example, I guess, which is yeah. interesting. Uh, also, just uh, like to know that we actually have a project that's interested in looking at building those registers in a more collaborative mm. way. Mm. So that's mm. one of the projects that we've got underway. Thank you. Um, I thought you made a really interesting point around empowering customers around their own data, understanding how they can use it and leverage it better. Um, and particularly, I guess, in reference to what you were saying around the open banking initiative, have you seen any progress um, around how to educate customers over what decisions their data has been used by third parties, for example. 
to cater specific products or services to them? Well, I, th I mean, I think there are, there are lots. I think the individual banks are waking up both to two things. Well, they're aware of the fact that they need to, um, in a very fast-changing landscape of financial engineering anyway, they need, to, they need to become much more alert to the choices that notionally their customers will have. Okay. Um, but are the customers aware and are they incentivized to, um, to, to act on the information that may, might be made available? And that's an interesting question. I mean, of course, when, when the original My Data program kicked off, a lot of the focus was, uh, was around a particular class of, uh, of consumer cho choice, which is switching. Okay? And of course, switching is, um, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it looks like a great uh, um, opportunity, and uh, uh, you can see sectors where it's quite effectively used. We know there is a lot of resistance to that within banking. Now, why is that? Um, do they understand the nature of the products and the differences that might exist between product types? And of course, there you've got this interesting tension between you know, banks who may be more or less incentivized to make those things entirely clear. And, and, and again, product complexity. We've seen that in, I think, in utility uh, industry, where the um, ability to repackage all sorts of products kind of has this, this, this feeling of obfuscation. You don't quite know what deal you're getting or whether it meets your interests. So mobile phone tariffs, another example. So then you get this balance between regulatory activity where people say, you know, people should clearly know what they're getting into, what choices they have. Um, and then the question is, can the consumer make a, f a choice? And um, there's a lot to do on that, that's for sure. And even when the evidence might be quite clear, there still is a lot of, in a sense, inertia in the process. So these things, we have gotten used in many sorts of transactional contexts to there being very minimal amounts of inertia. And if there's any amount, uh, people find it difficult. We see that, by the way, on the other side of the fence, which isn't just about affecting your choice. Well, another kind of choice is to affect a decision about what apps privacy settings might be, you know. And again, we're aware in that in the battle going on there that some apps um, make default decisions on your behalf that you feel are <laughs> not the ones you'd like. Um, but how easy, how easy is it really to make fine-grained choices and decisions based on that? So the whole issue around consumer empowerment in terms of the insights they have is, is, is a material one. There's a huge amount of education to do. And even when there's education, it might not be enough even of itself. You have to have, a, you have, to have some, some, some things that are clearly choices to make in these areas. I think, yeah, I think for me there's that whole interesting level of you may be getting catered products and services, but actually understanding what data they've taken yeah. of yours yeah. to make that and yeah. informing you yeah. so that therefore you can decide how to cater your own yeah. data profile and say, yeah. I want to share this in future with companies, but actually this has resulted in me getting yeah. a more expensive yeah. quote from a car insurer because I shared this that's right. That's data. right, and that's a very, those are very good examples. I think where that onward transmission will have an impact, an unintended consequence that you didn't anticipate. Yeah. Cool. I think we have time for one quick question. If anyone's got anything really burning, yep. Uh, you mentioned um, volunteer train buffs collecting uh, transport-related mm. data, mm. Um, and um, I'm very involved in the OpenStreetMap mm. project, which of course is volunteer-based. Uh, Mm. Um, 
replacements to the Ordnance Survey was initially, actually, our frustration with the lack of openness with Ordnance Survey. Um, and then there's organizations like the Open Knowledge Foundation, yep. which I kind of feel are very volunteer-rooted, yeah. yeah. sort of um, volunteer open data activists yeah. doing things there. And I wonder whether you see that kind of thing as um, something that needs to be swept aside and, and professionalized, or how does it fit with the future of open no, data? No, I don't. I really don't, because I think um, everybody's a censor, and every, literally in both senses of the word of censor now. Um, we see it in citizen science. Uh, we see it in efforts like um, OSM. I think we, we, we uh, uh, it would be very, our challenge is to work out how we build governance processes where we can induct that crowdsourced content in a way that allows, if you like, um, <coughs> centrally collected and volunteer collected information to kind of be integrated. Um, and I think there are, good example cases where that happens and often in extremis it's just made to happen because it's too important not to get the thing to work um, no I think there's, uh, there's, there's there, there are good examples to go out there we've got good use cases where it's worked um, I don't see them being shift, swept aside at all simply because the power of what people are carrying around to collect and analyze and the exponent that is the number of people who are around um, gives you an extraordinary um, instrumentation and collection process. Uh, now, of course, your expert cartographer or your expert um, uh, um, collector of, of data in, in a particular sector will have their role too, but I, I think you really want to design this funnel so you can take the collective uh, volunteer data for the value it really has. And we see, we see that everything from medical science through to to geospatial data. I don't think we've really sat down to work out how we'd set those, that kind of governance up. One or two counterexamples of that, where, which are at big enough scale where that's been thought of, I think. And again, uh, OSM represents an example of that. Wiki, Wiki, Wikimedia represents an example of that. Wiki Foundation. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, thank you very much, Nigel, and thank you very much for everyone who joined us uh, online and in the room. And uh, I'm going to. If you wouldn't mind joining me in one Thank last you. round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.